The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matson. Today we are joined by Winta Gebriessis. The Space Shuttle Columbia disaster of 2003 claimed the lives of all seven astronauts on board. As a young girl, Winta Gebriessis saw this tragic event on TV and knew that she wanted to be part of the generation to follow that would improve the vehicle's design to prevent human tragedies like this. This ultimately led to her attending Ryerson University's aerospace engineering program. In her undergrad, Winta specialized in avionics and control systems. After earning her master's, she's continued her research on aircraft cabin interior noise control. Today, Winta is a PhD candidate at Ryerson, where her daily work focuses on reducing aircraft cabin noise at the passenger level using an integrated active noise control system. During her internship at AeroVelo, she worked on and piloted Atlas, a human-powered helicopter and winner of the Sikorsky Prize. Winta has also served as vice president of Ryerson's Rocketry Club for two years and was a research advisor for the Ryerson Hyperloop Quad Team drawing heavily from her previous role with the team as an electronics member. I am so excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Winta. Thanks for having me, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. You have been on our list for such a long time, and I'm so glad we've been able to make this happen. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here with you today. And all that to say, we'll just jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Yeah, so my journey in aviation started after the Columbia disaster. And I remember watching the hello. Uh, the heavily televised reports that the shuttle had crashed and then looking at the long trails of debris. And I was 11 at the time, but that event had you know, a really big impact on the rest of my life. Uh, and I, I remember wanting answers, but I also wanted to somehow uh, fix the shuttle design process. And fast forward to a couple years later, uh, when I decided to go to a local high school where my focus was on tech design. And it wasn't the closest school to home, but I knew that it would be, you know, the perfect stepping stone to engineering. And, and then I went on to pursue my Bachelor of Aerospace Engineering at Ryerson University, uh, followed by my Master's of Science, and here I am today. Now, I'm fascinated that you as an 11-year-old were seeing the tragedy unfold on TV of the Columbia uh, reentry disaster. And you thought, how do I make a difference? How can I be involved in preventing this? I'm just so intrigued by someone at such a young age having such a clear notion of this is what I want to do. How do I get involved? Yeah, I mean, uh, it started really early for me. And, uh, you know, I didn't un- understand the the, the the big picture, but I knew that I wanted to be part of that change looking forward. So, uh, you know, that that passion grew. And then I realized that I needed to take the necessary steps to to get to where I am today. Now, was there any interest in aviation and aerospace beforehand, or did you just see that on TV and thought, no, that's what I want to do? Uh, pretty much, yeah. There was really nothing beforehand. I, I always w- had a strong interest in, in math and science, but not in, in looking at this career specifically. So how did you choose Ryerson ultimately as your first post-secondary pursuit? Well, I think it was the closest school to home. Now, during your undergrad, you specialized in avionics and control systems. How did you decide to specialize in these facets? 
Yeah, so I was always interested in robotics and coding. And in high school, I uh, participated in robotics competitions. So I was concerned with getting the different mechanisms to operate safely uh, from a controls point of view. And as you know, Laura, uh, you know, the avionics is like the brains of the aircraft or spacecraft. And I recently came across a quote by Milton Rosen. Uh, he's an aerospace engineer and an early NASA exec. And he once said, uh, it all looked so easy when you did it on paper where the valves never froze, gyros never drifted, and rocket motors didn't blow up in your face. Uh, and it's funny because it's so true. Uh, oftentimes you can do everything in your power to create the perfect design and it still fails. And, and this is why we take testing very seriously. And I'm even thinking just sort of in terms of failing and retrying several times, the, I think it's the Edison quote or the quote that's attributed to Thomas Edison of designing the light bulb, which is that he found all these different ways not to make the light bulb, but he finally found the one that did. And it's again, this idea of testing, redesigning, the brains of the plane or the aircraft in any capacity and just how that all comes together because as we become a more technology and technologically based society and uh, planet, there's going to be more and more technology involved in these systems. And I can sort of see looking forward to the future and uh, even working at such a great distance remotely from aircraft uh, on the ground that you wanna have such a focus on those avionics and aircraft systems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. You know, I think failure is necessary in, you know, every field. So if you fail soon enough or the faster, the better, so that you could really get to, to, to hone in on uh, what the solution will look like. And as you said, you know, as we enter into the, the, the digital age and all, all these um, transformations, uh, we're coming with, up with all, you know, unique, unique solutions to a lot of the world's problems. Now, is there a particular avionic system or control system that you found particularly interesting while you were studying? Well, we had a, you know, a three degree freedom or two degree freedom helicopter set up. Um, it, it's just a, on a small scale um, for our capstone project in fourth year. So that was something that I got to play around with a little bit. Um, but going into my into my master's, it was kind of that that classical uh, controls work. Uh, with PID controllers that I, uh, you know, I really uh, made a connection with. So I would say, uh, you know, controls and then uh, my, my acoustics work kind of was uh, built off of that uh, foundation. So, yeah. Now, did seeing some of these system failures or at least how the systems interacted with each other board Columbia, maybe subconsciously drive your focus towards control systems? Absolutely. So that one was a structural failure, um, if I'm not wrong, uh, or if I'm not mistaken. But I realized that, you know, oftentimes um, controls was really the complex challenge in in aerospace. And so I wanted to to get to the root of the problem and see, you know, how I could insert myself at that fundamental level uh, to, 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 to to target those issues. And, uh, and then the, let the structures people do, 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 you know, the material science research and all of that. But I knew that, uh, you know, controls and avionics was where I fit in. I'm so fascinated listening to this because I have the exact opposite, which is someone else is going to design the plane. <laughs> someone else is going to design the avionics. I just want to be up front flying thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all have our, our different strengths, right? 
different strengths, different, yeah, sort of more passions. I, I passions, appreciate, yeah. yeah, I appreciate the <laughs> systems. I appreciate the avionics, but I just want to look outside and have fun. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2018, you co-authored a paper, Zone-Based Active Noise Control via Head Tracking for an Aircraft Seat. How is active noise control related to the concept of a smart aircraft cabin, and what considerations are made for passenger comfort beyond noise? Yeah, so, um, you know, we were talking earlier, and I said that um, my research is a joint initiative with Bombardier Aerospace and uh, and also between uh, them and Ryerson. And the the general topic is reconfigurable cabin interiors. And we're developing uh, something called a smart cabin. And it's, uh, you know, through this work, I've had the privilege of uh, conducting research under the supervision of Dr. Jeff C, who is well-respected for his amazing work in advanced robotics and manufacturing. And so what's a smart cabin, you may ask? And it's, it's, it's exactly that, it's innovative technologies um, combined with a cabin management system uh, that brings together an immersive experience for passengers uh, so that they can manage the, the cabin environment with ease. And my focus is on reducing aircraft cabin noise at the passenger level uh, using what's called an integrated active noise control system. And, you know, going over, over the work briefly uh, in terms of the technicalities, uh, the focus of my research is to study how a human reacts to the vehicle's environment uh, by looking at the relationship between physical input inputs, such as uh, visual and audio, and human characteristics, such as the eyes and ears. And the impact uh, of this project is a direct contribution to the growing field of human factors, which I know is a big theme on your show or podcast. And uh, we're also trying to, to, to fill the gap in cabin noise research. So we're, we're collaborating with researchers in adaptive sensing and control systems for comfort, smart wearable systems, and AI methods uh, for comfort control and also for travel comfortability. So in short, and to answer your question, Laura, um, I'm currently looking at the effects of head tracking on localizing the noise reduction uh, so that it's really around the passenger's ears specifically. So it's, it's, it's about producing a personalized solution for the passenger. And you can say that this project uh, really captures both the technical and, and the cultural aspects of passenger sound comfort. Now, I think many of our listeners have been on very long flights or even short flights just in their lives and just in their lifetime. And you end up with kind of, it's, it's long. It can be really long. You can kind of just start to kind of get wear, worn out just by even sitting there. So how do you think having a reduction in noise will just impact even just the human experience of just being able to withstand uh, a flight like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the noise comes from different um, sources in, in the aircraft. So, you know, it could come from the turbulent boundary layer. Um, oftentimes people say a crying baby, um, the engine tones. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, the, the vibration and the noise coming from the different control surfaces and then the airframe itself. So um, it's really seeing what each passenger um, defines as, uh, you know, disturbing noise and targeting that for the control. And then, and then seeing, uh, you know, at what points in the flight does it become a problem? And uh, our, our part is to see if, if uh, we could create a way that they could control that uh, in terms of like on and off or just a little noise. So it's, it's, 
you know, it's benefits like that that we're really looking at and, and to, to, to make the passenger experience wholesome. Now, I know you can go into this at a great depth, but sort of at the very basic surface level, what is head tracking and how is that being used to relate to uh, sort of this uh, active noise reduction? Yeah, so for the head tracking element, um, normally when you sit in a seat, uh, you, you, you don't normally, you don't stay there for or the whole flight, you know, like you might move around for if you want to, you know, fall asleep or uh, read a book. So there's still some movement in terms of your head. And that ultimately means that the reduction will be affected. So what we're creating is uh, a way to track where your head is at all times uh, for when the ANC or active noise control system is on. And then that way uh, we have embedded sensors and speakers actually in the head in the headrest that can follow your every move, so to speak. So um, it's it's using that um, insight and uh, AI, we're, we're using AI machine learning, all of the, the buzzwords, but fundamentally it's actually looking at where your head is and trying to further improve the noise reduction or what's called a zone of quiet to uh, ultimately make it as comfortable as possible from a noise control uh, point of view. Now, something like this, it sounds so futuristic, cutting edge to have sort of a bespoke sort of center of quiet or rather zone of quiet around you. When is maybe the earliest you could see this being implemented in large sort of large scale passenger operations? Well, right now we're working uh, with business jets. So it is a very costly system. And, uh, you know, in aerospace, we always want to reduce the cost. Uh, and but also the weight. So all of that work has yet to be done. Um, and there's also, you know, the process of certification. So I think definitely something is in the works. Um, well, there are systems that technically exist, but not really with the whole passenger experience. So I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll, we can see it move into different markets. What other designs, I guess, are being developed right now that also relate to passenger comfort in a sort of a smart cabin concept? Yeah, so we're looking at um, lighting, uh, making it so that it actually uses um, uh, circadian uh, inputs to, to um, you know, uh, be based on melatonin levels for, for sleep comfortability. Um, we're also looking at uh, AR and VR um, inputs for um, the, the cockpit. And so I hadn't really considered it until now, but we've talked to sort of passenger comfort throughout these longer flights and even shorter flights. I mean, people want to be comfortable and not feeling tired, even just with the sort of ongoing uh, sound pollution and just want to be able to get on with their day. Has there been a lot of developments related to that for maybe the pilot experience? There has been, but I mean, it's not something that we're currently looking at because it's a totally different environment. Um, you know, it's, it's a much smaller environment. So for us, it's looking at the, the whole cabin, but then further uh, narrowing down the, the control to only where the passenger is seated. So um, we're looking at larger spaces and uh, it becomes a different, a different sort of uh, controls problem uh, in terms of really the transmission path from the, uh, shakers that we have mounted on the outside of the cabin to generate that acoustic environment and then following that path into where the passenger is seated. I can just keep listening to you talk about this. I'm, I'm so interested. 
<laughs> Thank you. It's really exciting work. It is exciting work. And I mean, you think of some of the comments that are maybe made nowadays that aviation travel has maybe for, from a passenger perspective declined slightly in the experience that it's not maybe as glamorous as it used to be, but it's work like this that is bringing that sort of passenger comfort and passenger first experience back into the aircraft cabin to make it that glamorous again. Absolutely. And as we were talking about before, um, really the, the cabin management system is going to be the biggest piece, which is all of these little technologies and subsystems sort of plugging into the centralized system that could uh, basically put all of this control into the palm of the passenger's hand and that they could control it all like, you know, using an app or something like that. Of course, there's an app for that. Yes. <laughs> Now, previously you served as the vice president of Ryerson's Rocketry Club. How did you find yourself in this club? And what is it like to build these 10-foot tall rockets? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think the past connects to the future. So uh, my initial interest in aerospace uh, was from my fascination of launching a rocket. So uh, it, it led me to join the Ryerson Rocketry Club, or RRC for short. And in my second year of undergrad, uh, I, uh, I became, you know, a member at this club and I started as an avionics member, obviously, <laughs> where I was responsible for all of the electronic systems on board the 10 feet uh, competition rocket and systems like flight computers and telemetry. I then became avionics co-lead and then team VP for two years and RRC promotes amateur rocketry. And I was involved in student engagement, such as model rocket building and motor certification. So these were really the, the big parts of the, of the club. And every year we would participate in, in an international rocket competition called IREC, uh, hosted by the Experimental uh, Sound Rocket, Sounding Rocket Association. So in the past, it was held in the small, very small town of Green River, Utah. And then it was moved to Spaceport America in New Mexico, which is, you know, an official spaceport uh, with, uh, you know, FAA licensing and all of that. And most of our competition rockets had two stages, uh, along with a scientific payload, uh, which is always a requirement. And I would say that the entire process of designing, uh, building, testing, and launching a competition rocket would happen over the course of an academic year. And in this time, it would give us, you know, ample time to consult with our academic advisors and lab technicians who would share, you know, really golden nuggets of information or would assist immensely uh, with manufacturing tasks. And seeing the different subsystems come together at the end for me was a great experience and also the culmination of our hard work and concentrated efforts. And then, of course, uh, the, the feels, uh, which I like to call it, you know, you hold your breath before the final countdown and lift off, uh, followed by loud cheers and sighs of relief, if successful. Uh, and then it's off to recovering the rocket before the sun sets. Um, so it was also at this time that, uh, you know, I became a student member of the Tripoli Rocketry Association. And Tripoli is a US-based organization uh, dedicated to the advancement and operation of amateur high power rocketry or HPR. And what I found is that HPR is really educational. And so I was learning how to build a model rocket. And in that process, I could help others do the same. And Tripoli is a, you know, 
it has multi multiple levels of certification. So levels uh, one, two, three. And each certification allows a member to purchase high power rocket motors uh, within a certain impulse range. And as a member, I got to, I got to get my level one certification um, after a successful flight in Orangeville, Ontario. And then shortly after I wrote my level two exam and you know, it would be really nice to get my full level two. And uh, that requires you to, to build, fly and successfully recover a rocket uh, using a certain certified high power rocket motor in the J to L impulse range. I'm just amazed that there's this whole part of university clubs. You, I mean, you think of different special interest groups, but this is not just a special interest group. This is so specialized and technical. Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of them in the US um, and, and the competition actually brings together 70 teams from all over the world, at least when, when yeah. I last was a part of it. So yeah, it's, 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 it's really nice because in the classroom, you learn the, the, the building blocks and then in clubs and teams like this, uh, you get to put it to work. So it's, it's amazing. I can imagine being at these competitions is just like it's just such a different sort of experience that you'd normally have. It's again, 70 teams, everyone's international and you just have all these rockets. I mean, these are not, I assume, easy to transport, uh, easy to get set up. And then of course the idea that oh man, you could be at this competition holding your breath and it doesn't fully come to fruition as you would hope. That would just be just such a wild roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, you said it perfectly. It's really a breath of, of fresh air and I could never get used to it. This is why I went to the competition for four times and every time it was a different experience. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is having fun and everyone is super supportive. Um, you get to meet, you know, teams from different parts of the world. And I think that's really what engineering and aerospace engineering is, is all about. And of course, I was going to sort of maybe initially say, oh, and then of course, you can take inspiration from someone else. But it's not so much inspiration as it is really sort of a sharing of ideas and technology. And that's, I guess, really the hope for, I guess, a lot of engineering when it's more globalized like this, is that you can share technologies and advancements and work together to ultimately create a better product. Absolutely. And I think the, mo the more open source ideas and projects and platforms become, especially online, um, you know, th that, that creates for a better world. And uh, yeah, I think when we're, we're all learning together um, in a way that's competitive, but at the same time, you know, positive, um, there's really nothing that we can't do. And with these rockets, when you launch them, is there a certain altitude they need to get to? I, I guess I'm sort of curious as to the metrics of a successful rocket flight, aside from just sort of being able to lift off. Yeah, absolutely. So there was normally two categories. There was the 10K or 10,000 feet category, uh, which uh, we participated in mo for most of the time. And then there was the second category for 30 feet. And that one is where you would see the, the big guns or the, the big rockets with the really big motors and fancy designs and, uh, you know, drogue and main chutes or parachutes that were really, really long, but had to be compacted into like a six inch diameter rocket. So, um, you know, ultimately you can claim that you got to that, to that height or altitude, but ultimately, unless there's proof, um, the judges will say otherwise. So uh, the hard part was finding your rocket and then making sure that your avionics or your flight computers could actually back up your claim.
Oh, of course it would have to have like a flight data recorder. Yeah. And then there, I, I don't think there was really a restriction on the, the length of the rocket, but you would have to really convince the judges that you used sound uh, engineering principles to create it. Um, there was even, maybe what I will add is that there, there was a preliminary design report that all teams had to submit and then they would go through the checklist of safety, you know, recovery system, what type of motor, uh, what's the scientific payload. So all of those steps had to be completed before you could even show up to the competition. Yeah, you can't have everyone else that has these 10 foot, 12 foot rockets. Here you are with your yeah. 25 <laughs> foot rocket saying, no, yeah. no, it's scientifically sound. We got yes. it approved. Yes. What would the scientific payloads be? Oh, wow. We would see the most unique payloads. So I think our proudest payload was Roger 2. I forget what the acronym stood for, but it was uh, it was a rover and it would deploy uh, upon landing and uh, it would it would I, I was supposed to take a sample of the atmosphere uh, of the of the ground and and then uh, you know take it for processing. It had a camera. It was a very snazzy payload, but other teams had really fancy payloads. Now, you've been a research advisor for the Ryerson Hyperloop pod team. Could you explain to me more about this role and the Hyperloop pod itself? Back in 2013, Elon Musk and his friends, uh, they came up with the idea of the Hyperloop. And almost immediately, the engineering community was interested. And it kind of works by propelling a pod through a vacuum tube. And it, it combines the technologies we see in cars, trains, and aircraft. Uh, so the pod or, or the vehicle itself, it floats in the tube, which has been depressurized to a near vacuum state. And the reason for this is to reduce aerodynamic drag on the pod, as well as friction from its wheels. It propels itself through this tube using electric motors for travel in a straight line. And for the Hyperloop to be the world's fifth mode of transport, it would have to reach speeds of up to 700 miles per hour. What's really neat is that it can practically operate across any landscape and in harsh conditions such as natural disasters. So a little bit about our, our team. Our team was created in September 2015, and I joined a year later as an electronics and controls member where I, I got to help design, build, and test our deployable wheel system for the Hyperloop. Our system was designed for low speed travel and emergency conditions inside of the mile long test track. It, it looks like a traditional aircraft landing gear, especially as it retracts into the body of the pod. And I would say that it was the design, manufacturing and testing of this system that allowed us to collaborate with over 20 sponsors, international sponsors, and like rocketry, thousands of students. Because it's a new form of transportation, it, it also involves a multidisciplinary group of students and professionals. And this is in part why students worldwide are working on the Hyperloop project today, all coming from very different backgrounds, such as aerospace, mech, and even electrical engineering, just to name a few. It was in January of 2017 when, when SpaceX invited us to participate in the first ever Hyperloop pod competition, uh, which was at their headquarters in California. 
And here we were really able to showcase our demonstration pod. And shortly after, I decided to stay connected by becoming an academic advisor to the incoming team. Now, I have so many questions about this, but I guess the first one is sort of from the inception to today. I guess, how has the Hyperloop evolved and developed over the last, gosh, almost seven years now? Well, the Hyperloop promises to connect people and places. Um, a trip from Toronto to Montreal could take 40 minutes or even three hours to Vancouver. And not only can the Hyperloop bring Canadians closer together from coast to coast to coast, but it also provides great economic benefits. And about a year ago, Virgin Hyperloop, an American transportation tech company, became the only one in the world to successfully test this high-speed technology for ground-based travel after carrying real human passengers. Its tests were conducted in the Nevada desert. And get this, there's now a Canadian Hyperloop conference that brings together students with an interest in the transportation tech landscape in Canada. And you can subscribe to their newsletter to learn more about their events. In addition to having considered pursuing a private pilot license, you also had the opportunity to work on and pilot Atlas, AeroVelo's human-powered helicopter and winner of the Sikorsky Prize. What was this experience like? Yeah, so at the end of my third year of undergrad, which was many years ago now, um, I landed a summer internship at a startup called AeroVelo. Um, and AeroVelo is a unique innovation lab whose custom, if you will, is to do more with less and really taking on advanced engineering challenges. So I had the opportunity to be a structural engineering intern here with the goal of helping my team win the AHS Sikorsky Prize, uh, which was created back in 1980 by the American Helicopter Society. And the requirements were that a human powered helicopter had to stay airborne for 60 seconds and to reach an altitude of three meters, uh, all the while uh, you know, being cognizant of the center point of the aircraft and it only had to stay within a 10 by 10 meter box. So it couldn't drift too far away from that limit. And in only 18 months, the team was able to capture this 33 year old prize. And going into my role, um, I was to help conduct repairs and trim flights on Atlas, uh, which was the name for our human powered helicopter and also to perform aerodynamic analyses on the startup company's other vehicles. Uh, so we went through rigorous rounds of repairs and testing uh, in the summer, uh, but between the design meetings and barbecues, uh, our close-knit team was persistent. And it, it was a long commute to the facility for me, but totally worth it in the end, <laughs> um, totally. I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. And we also had to also to, to store the aircraft. Um, and that was a problem, a little bit of a problem because the, it, it's the size of an airliner, but we stored it in a trailer outside. So each of the, you know, we had these big um, carbon fiber arms that were truss-like. So each of them had to be disassembled and sort of rearranged in uh, a Tetris style way so that it would fit at the trailer at the end of the day. And uh, so we had to assemble it and disassemble it each day. Um, but as, as we improved, we also faced setbacks. And I think the team had tried 
two times really to the, we got really close to getting the prize but then there would be a big crash or another delay but we knew that it was possible and so that's why we, we uh, persevered and so after the record-breaking day um i was presented with an opportunity to fly atlas and really that's when the fun started for me because i you know that opportunity was like something that i never imagined that i'd get to do um, but there were some requirements, such as a weight cutoff for some of the, the members, well, for all the members, and also operating standards to ensure a safe ride. Um, and something that we did was we, we joked that there were more people in the world that have walked on the moon than had flown a human powered helicopter. And until that glorious day in September, when 12 of us became uh, human, power, human powered helicopter pilots. So, yeah, that was a neat, a neat thing that we put into perspective. Especially when you look at it from that perspective of exactly that, more people have walked on the moon than have flown a human-powered helicopter. How is a helicopter human-powered? What does that look like? Yeah, so basically at the, at the center of it is where the pilot would sit. And uh, all of our trim flights is, us, is where we would make these adjustments to the 150-foot wide, or it's like 150 feet from one side to the other. Um, so we would make adjustments on the order of like one thou, which is one thousandth of an inch. And uh, that's because it was very sensitive and a very flexible structure made out of advanced uh, engineering materials. But the drive system worked kind of like, like real to real tape um, where the pilot would sit in the middle of the structure and pedal. And uh, as he did um, a line of Vectran, uh, which is like enhanced yarn, uh, would unwind from each of these four rotor spools that were on either end of the of the structure uh, through a pulley box. So as the as the as the, as the string would unwind, um, the the pilot would keep pedaling, and that process repeated. And that meant that after every trial run, uh, we always had to unwind the helicopter, so to speak, uh, and then and then wind it back up again. <laughs> so it was a lot of tedious work, but it was also a lot of fun. Um, but as you can imagine, the controls was very challenging. And before our final iteration of our testing, the controls used to be um, using like four four lines of string, or well, well four, four lines of Vectran. But in the end, we found that it was just better if the pilot became the control. So as the pilot would lean, um, the the whole system would would uh, would go into the direction of his leaning. So um, we found that that was the, the best option. And uh, as he leaned, the, he would pull on thin wires and then the overall structure would flex. And then in turn, the, the, the rotors would tilt, the four rotors would, would tilt in the direction of flight. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm just sort of thinking though, if it's uh, pedal powered, God, in addition to like the weight requirements that you would have had for the pies, you guys must have all just had like great quads. <laughs> well, our team was, I, I guess our team, not, I would say athletic. We had, we did have a compute trainer spin bike that all of us uh, would practice on, but the, the, the pilot, uh, which is our co-founder, Todd, uh, he, he's actually an athlete. So he did most of the rigorous training. And when we flew it, we only flew it for like about a minute, but he, he had to sustain the three minutes and the power output was like through the roof. So 
um, he could do it, we, we, we would have to try really hard to. Yeah, I was just sort of thinking like, that sounds like the most intense spin class you could ever possibly have. Absolutely. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Yeah, so for me growing up, it was always Dr. Roberta Bondar. Um, because she was the first Canadian woman and the world's first neurologist in space. Um, I I really just wanted to be just like her Um, because she does it all. You know, she's a photographer, a physician, a neurologist, an astronaut, and much more. Um, And she also has like four degrees, including a PhD and an MD. And so in a way, she's really the most academically decorated Canadian in space, um, at least at the time. Um, and, And her accomplished her accomplishments in space medicine research upon her return to earth uh you know that that further inspired me to to really see her um her her active volunteering or volunteerism and uh you know her way of giving back to 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 the community and to society as a whole say when i think of dr bondar what i think of is in addition to being so academically decorated and just so accomplished is that she's made this huge focus on paying it forward volunteerism and trying to really inspire the next generation of Canadians who want to get into aviation and aerospace. I I admire that she just from my perception of her has always seemed to really care about not necessarily who not necessarily who she is but rather what she can do and how she can use her uh, fame if we want to say that how she can use her influence to really bring attention to uh, environmental challenges in space and promoting that to young Canadians. She, she just seems like a really nice person in addition to being so accomplished. And I'm mindful that you said that you focus on giving back and paying it forward. And that's something that I, if Roberta Bondar is something that you look up to, I don't see how you would be any other way. Thank you. I aspire to be, yeah, you know, like half the woman that she is. So, yeah. I mean, she seems benevolent, kind, and approachable, and what more can you want in a role model? I know, right? <laughs> I find people either have, oh, there's one very specific person, or yeah. there's, it, like... For me, 30. it was. Yeah. It really was for me, because, like, I saw Roberto, Dr. Roberta Bondar on, um, on textbooks. There was a poster in my sixth grade class, and so I would, like, look at her every day as I went into class. So it, it was very... It hit home for me that she was... I, that I wanted to be in a way, just like her, but also carve my own path. She's clearly set the tone for how you wanted to go about your professional life. Thank you. And I would say you've accomplished that. You have that focus on paying it forward, innovating, designing, and at the end of the day, you're still approachable. You still are willing to be uh, benevolent and participate in your community. So I, I'm, there's definitely not just an inspiration, but I see a definite sort of shared uh, link that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, I- I think we have to. We really have to. Now, what advice would you have for someone considering a career in aerospace engineering? So I would say to do your research because that's something that I did and that I still continue to do. Um, At the end of the day, you want to make sure that you do something that you enjoy. And for me, that's aerospace. And it's it's where I feel the most comfortable in. And for children and maybe even youth, consider joining a space camp Uh, you know, over the March break or the summer months. And I know that this past July in Longueuil, Quebec, the Canadian Space Agency launched its junior astronaut camp uh, for the summer. So young people from across Canada 
virtually joint astronauts, engineers, and scientists from the CSA uh, for an amazing week-long, uh, you know, journey, if you will, of space training. And I also know that at Ryerson, our Faculty of Engineering and Architectural Science Programming has summer camps and outreach events dedicated to young people. So in addition to that, you could also visit science centers and planetariums to just stay connected. Um, aerospace engineers, we design, build, and test aircraft, spacecraft, satellites, and launch vehicles. Um, some of my peers and the people that I, that I know are test pilots, consultants, and leaders in manufacturing and, uh, in, and in supply chain companies. And as engineers, we design products and structures that people use every day. But we also have a duty to uphold ethical practices um, as well as technical ones. And in terms of post-secondary schools, uh, there are really only a handful of accredited engineering programs in Canada that offer aerospace degrees. Um, Carleton University in Ottawa, as you may know, has the longest standing program and the Royal Military College of Canada in Kingston also has a unique one. So be sure to check out, you know, the one, you know, the curriculum and uh, to see if you're on your way to meeting the prerequisite requirements for the different programs. And also remember to stay curious and inspired. Now, would you please share a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? Yeah, so, you know, on the note of giving back to the community um, through mentoring and outreach, I, uh, I uh, was a part of um, an event at the Oshawa Municipal Airport but, uh, that was organized by Leslie Page, and it was on International Women's Day. Uh, and so the first Canadian chapter of the 99s and also uh, the Durham Flight Center hosted the event. And you may know it, it's called uh, the Girls Take Flight event. And Leslie invited me to share my aerospace journey with some of the events participants. And I was really honored to be there and to be uh, part of the event alongside 70 volunteers. And by the end of the day, um, about 140 girls and women got to experience flying probably for the first time. Um, so this event was a great opportunity to connect with young students. And for me, uh, yeah, that event was really special uh, because I began to forge a path of my own for future women aviators. And, you know, I felt the importance of being a role model to those girls. And yeah, it, it brought me back to my childhood days. So yeah, I felt really in my element that day. I've been fortunate enough to participate in and attend different girl fly days and girls take flight days. And they are so inspiring. You can't leave them even as a grown adult woman, you can't leave them feeling anything other than just elated at the end of the day. So I, I can imagine having been invited to be specifically a, a guest that day would just be uh, so rewarding. It really was. And, you know, um, aviation or, you know, you know, being among pilots wasn't something that I've ever really done before. So that event opened me up to a whole new world. And then later, a few years later, I attended the Canadian Women in Aviation Conference. And that in itself was, again, a totally different experience. But I think really when, you know, aerospace and people in aviation come together, there's, there's so much common ground and there's so many lessons to be learned. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, so I'm most active on LinkedIn in terms of like my professional stuff, community work. Um, my handle is like, uh, it's W Gebrai, so W-G-H-E-B-R-E-I. And yeah, for those interested in rocketry, they could also check out our um, 
YouTube channel for Ryerson Rocketry, uh, raw footage, all of the fun stuff, videos, testing, a weather balloon. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Laura. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.